listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lees. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Whoa. Hey. What is up, my dudes going and dudettes? Cool cats and kittens. Welcome. Welcome to the final episode of the season. Yes. Season finale. Season one. Holy crap, Done guys. Dusted. We, had a, we have a full season. Well, a- yeah, the wheels fell off a little bit at the end. Yeah. There. Uh, well, look, this is our first year of the podcast being a thing and being out and episodes going up and a season. I mean, it's crazy. It's- yeah, um, but uh, I'm... What? <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up perfectly. Why I'm- is my brain... Well, my mouth starts to make word noises and then my <laughs> brain just stops. Thank God we have a show where we talk. In oh, microphones for a, anyway, a, welcome a to Best Served Cold. The uh, what are we? <laughs> We're a true crime podcast. Shit. Well, we drink wine and talk about crime. Yeah, we I, don't need wine tonight because Laura's already drunk on life. Yeah, apparently I don't need anything. Yeah. Uh, I'm Laura Elise, one of your excellent co-hosts. But what you may not know is I'm actually a thirty-six thousand-year-old demon. Wow. And I am Tama J. Uh, Santa Claus does not exist. I am delivering all your presents for him. Including the coal. Including the coal. Especially the coal. That comes courtesy of Gladys Berejiklian. Who, if you don't live in Australia, she's the uh, premier of New South Wales, the great state that we live in. Yeah, look her up. She's a hottie. Uh, but yeah, look, the episodes have been, uh, let's just say, patchy for the last two months. Yeah, probably. so look, we always plan to have a season finale and... You know, an end to this year's worth of um, shows. Obviously, this is our first year, so it's not something we planned out in like terms of a roadmap. Honestly, things kind of picked up out of nowhere uh, for the show, and it really kind of catapulted this whole schedule thing that we implemented for the show. We had sub shows, mini mini episodes, and it's been a an it's absolute a little bit too much in hindsight. It's been an absolute blast of a year, and in terms of planning how it ends in terms of like this year's series there hasn't really been much of a plan it's just been uh holy crap we need a break uh yeah and, i think and it's it's definitely a thing that needs to happen and it's going to happen this is going to be the last episode of this year we come back january next year yeah and i think we've been pretty open and honest about the you know our own like struggles with like mental health and to be honest like for me from a personal level like obviously you guys don't see like our day-to-day lives but like we both work full-time I work as a graphic designer on the side as like my side hustle we also exercise four times a week and I have an Instagram account that I like doesn't sound like much but like I create art for and honestly I'm just 150 percent so burnt out yeah, and so tired and yeah, I think we just like really, it was like we were running on fumes towards yeah. the end, which is why the episodes have been so patchy. It doesn't sound like a lot when you put it into words, but we're working eight hours a, a, a day, eight hours five a day days a week. Probably almost for me an hour commute each side of that. Yeah. So like say we're getting up at six and seven in the morning. Starting work at 8.30 or 9, it's not a lot of time to 
prep for things. You're getting ready, et cetera. You come home and it's time for dinner. It's time for exercise. It's time Yeah. For- like if my body could function with no sleep, I would be sweet. But unfortunately, I've tried that. doesn't work very well for me. So I do actually need to sleep. Uh, big shout out to General Spurg for following me on Instagram. That's what a weird... super random. I just got a notification for that and I'm scared to open my phone. And see That's what... very strange. Yeah. Also, shout out to the uh, random faceless... Not that I check out YouTube very often or it hasn't been updated in a long time. But uh, someone left a comment on one of our videos just being like, this intro is dumb. I was like, huh. okay, uh, cool. We actually put it through an IQ test and it scored in the high 170s. It's actually so smarter I'll have than you know, Albert good Einstein. sir, we raised that intro to be the also, genius Also, dumb is another word for mute. Uh, so it's the opposite of dumb. Yeah, maybe you just had it on audio. mute instead. So exactly. You just didn't hear it. You didn't hear all the complex notions that the intro had to offer for you. But yeah, so this will be our last episode for this season. Forever. Uh, don't, don't panic. Uh, I had one very, very lovely listener who sent us a message. By the way, when you guys send us messages on like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, genuinely makes our day. Yeah. Like, I know everyone says that, but I genuinely find it so lovely. Uh, I had this lovely listener message us worried that we'd, like, quit the podcast altogether. And I was like, no, dude, like, we're still doing it. We're just tired. Yeah. And the thing is, we we mentioned a few times that we kind of do this show now, you know, fully knowing that there are genuine listeners. People that like it. But it's still not a thing you know, in our heads that we go through every single day where we go, oh, there's actually like hundreds of people listening to the show every week. And so when we get messages from you guys reaching out and saying, you guys are right, where's the episode for this week? Like, I'm really keen for it. Actually, it's genuinely um, a positive thing in, in our lives to to wake up and like see messages like that. It's really cool. And we thank you guys for being so invested and in really transforming this year for us. It's been... Yeah, it's been very cool. It's been crazy. Uh, and to I, say thank you. Yeah. Our last uh, episode for the season is a is a double up. It's a big so, boy. like our Halloween special episode, Tama and I will be tackling two cases each. Mm-hmm. So, if you're wondering why, I'm assuming by that time we get to the end of this, it will be quite a long one. Yes. If you're wondering why it's so long, that's why. Uh, it's Christmas. It's a Christmas special. In. Yeah. I think um, more or less they're all related to Christmas in some way. Um, one of mine definitely. Uh, not really. Okay. Mine aren't related to Christmas at all. Sorry. Both of mine are Christmas related. Okay. Uh, I didn't get that memo, clearly. <laughs> no, no. It's cool. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, this is our like, Christmas special, not because it's Christmas themed, but because it's during Christmas. Uh, mine time. mine just time happened to be uh, centralized around Christmas. Incidentally, which is very, uh, not in terms of season greetings, but we'll, uh, I mean, I it might be, Christmas, just it might some, be some straight up murder. Oh, I guess we oh. are mental in some oh. sort of way. Before we get into it, the Zodiac cipher. Yes. So Crazy. Cool. 
Like, it's a bit of a shame that it didn't really lead to any sort of huge breaks in the case. Yeah, and I don't that think it ever really will. Amazing. Honest, it's crazy but, uh, that, that it was it, someone's COVID project, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a few different ciphers, like a few different, I think that's what they're called, aren't they? Yeah. Cryptologists. It was a few different cryptologists that worked on it together, one of which who was Australian, which is very cool. Nice. But yeah, I think it was just uh, some professionals and some amateurs that just kind of like bound, bound together, came together and cracked it, which is just so cool that after all this time, they've managed to crack it. Yes. Or crack one of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think without um, delaying too much, we might get into the cases. And as usual, we have our kind of spiely part at the end yeah. where we discuss things uh, not sort of case related. We just kind of just go off the deep end. And I think it will be, you know, a, a pretty decent one. It's going to be the end. It's like the last episode of the season. So, you know, we'll um, we'll definitely end it off in a high note. I think without further ado, let's just jump right into it. Who's going first? Let's you go first. All right, I'm going to do my short. Should I do my short one first because I have one that's kind of short? I think do the short ones first, and then we'll do the long ones at the end. All right, Uh, which is also good because my short one is probably the one that I can very loosely say is Christmas themed. Yes. Uh, in a very fucked up way. Great. Uh, It's also. Shocking to me that I I'd heard about this one in lots of different like you know those lists where you're like oh the twenty most depraved serial killers yeah. he makes the list nearly every time but in terms of like your Jeffrey Dahmer's your Ed Kemper's like there's not a huge amount of research that I could find that's gone into his sort of backstory and not a lot of specific information about the crimes themselves, I guess, which I found really surprising. So I'm talking about uh, David Parker Ray, a.k.a. the Toy Box Killer, which is my very loose toy box Christmas toys. Uh-huh. It's, it's a very loose connection, but it's... Um, it's a connection nonetheless. So he was known by this name for the homemade torture chamber that he constructed, which he called his toy box. So there have never actually been any bodies found that are associated with Ray. However, based off stories from his accomplices, it's suspected that he's responsible for the death of as many as 60 women. Shit. So the backstory that I could find on him, Ray was born in Bellin, New Mexico on November 6th, 1939 to his parents, Cecil and Nettie. And they lived on a small ranch and they were quite a poor family growing up. Ray had one younger sister, Peggy, and for most of their childhood, they lived with their grandparents after being sort of abandoned, I guess, by their mother and father when Ray was 10. Not much is known about their sort of family, aside from that their father was abusive and an alcoholic. Ray's grandfather was 70 at the time when he took the kids in, and he was allegedly incredibly strict and would lash out at the children with violence if his rules weren't followed. And aside from that, there's not a real, there's not really a lot known about his sort of childhood. Right. There's small snippets uh, of his childhood and teenage life, including that he was very tall for his age and a shy child, and so he was quite harshly bullied in school because of this. Oh yeah. Much of his teen years were spent alone drinking and doing 
drugs. However, one thing worth noting, for some time he did serve in the U.S. Army and was honorably discharged at the end of his uh, service. Okay. So it was rumored that his masochistic nature was first nurtured by his father, who allegedly, when he would go visit the kids, he would bring porn magazines depicting acts of sexual violence. And it was during his teen years that his sister Peggy discovered pictures drawn by Ray depicting violent sexual acts. Uh, so a grey flag. A red flag, sorry. It's a grey flag. Grey flag. <laughs> that's a grey flag. Just bland and boring. Yeah, that means nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, so during the early stages of his life, he was married and then divorced four times. And then okay. he had two children, one of which would become one of his accomplices in helping him lure in the women that he would torture. And that's sort of it. There's really not a lot you can find on his background or early life. Much of his life sort of prior to his capture and even the details of the crimes themselves is kind of like, I guess, shrouded in mystery or there's just not a lot known because... There's not a lot written about it, I guess. Um, However, I do briefly want to talk about Ray's main accomplice who assisted in both the kidnap, the torture and the rape and murder of these women. And that was Cindy Hendy. So Cindy was born in 1960 in an impoverished household in Washington. Her mother was an alcoholic who would often let her children go hungry with the kids having to beg for food until finally fed up, their mother would relent and feed them. So at age 12, Hendy is kicked out of home after accusing her mother's at the time boyfriend of attempting to rape her. And her mother obviously sides with the boyfriend and Mm. kicks her 12-year-old daughter out of the house. After being kicked out at such a young age, she begins dating drug dealers, finds work as a sex worker, and becomes heavily dependent on drugs and alcohol. She gives birth to three children, all of which who are eventually sent away to their grandparents. And in 1997, trying to flee grand theft and drug charges, Hendy moves to the small town of Truth and Consequences. Yep, that is Wait, the what? real name of the town. Wait, what the, the fuck? The town is called Truth and Consequences. Wait, wow. What a fantastic place to live. Jeez. I, what, wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, I fully did not believe that was real when I first read it. It might be like maybe a translation of something from yeah, Native I American. I don't know. Weird. It's truth and consequences. And this is where she meets David Ray Parker. So they meet while Hendy is working in a state park. And despite the 20 year age gap, they bond over their shared violent sexual fantasies. They shortly move in together and Hendy was quoted as saying, when I moved in, he started to tell me all the women he had murdered. He said at least one a year for about 40 years. So he's, you know, been at this for a long time. Right. Yeah, I told you it's real. Amazing. Did you say truth or consequences or truth and consequences? Uh, uh, I said truth and. It's truth or consequences. Oh, my apologies. That's okay. They have a population of 6,475. What a fantastic name, though. Yeah. Amazing. I never saw that in Breaking Bad. What a, that, should have been, that should have been the town where Walter White lived. Truth or consequences? What a beautiful <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. Apparently, it began on a radio and television program. How random. Yeah. Maybe that would have been a bit like on the nose to have him... 
well, live in a yeah, place so apparently consequences. There's a Ralph Edwards who who had a radio and television he was a radio and television producer, uh, had a game show known known as Truth or Consequences in the forties and fifties, sought a town that would change its name to that of its of his show. From the handful that applied, Little Hot Springs in New Mexico was chosen. Hmm. So there you go. Weird marketing. Sorry point. to interrupt you. No, that was well worth it. There you go. A little tiddbit of information there, kiddos. There you go. We learned something. Yeah. So apologies to the people of truth or consequences. Yes, we don't mean to butcher I your name. I wrote that wrong. So after abducting a girl together initially, Hendy said that she felt remorseful and their very first victim was released. However, they shortly began picking and abducting women together after. Hendy claims Ray would commit most of the torture acts himself while Hendy watched from the side. On March 22nd, 1999, several motorists report a young woman running naked and covered in blood, desperately trying to get someone to stop. Eventually, this woman finds her way to a nearby mobile home where she begs the owners to call the police. Police arrive shortly after and are horrified by the story that this woman, Cynthia Vigil, tells them. On March 19th, Cynthia, who was a sex worker, was in a parking lot in Albuquerque when she's approached by a man who offers her $20 for oral sex. Upon agreeing and entering his RV, the man reveals himself to be an undercover policeman and handcuffs her. Cynthia was quoted as saying straight away that she felt like something was off. And soon another woman appears who gags her, ties her up, and puts a metal collar around her neck. Jesus. They drive around for around an hour before stopping and moving Cynthia to a different trailer where she's tied to a bedpost. Here, a pre-recorded tape is played where a, where a man's voice explains that she is now imprisoned as a sex slave. She will be forced to have sex with the man and may only refer to him as master and the woman as mistress, and that she could never speak first only when spoken to. She is told of the unspeakable tortures that will be inflicted upon her and promised if she doesn't cooperate, she will, like many before her, be killed. Cynthia was quoted as saying, The way he talked, it didn't feel like this was his first time. Vigil said in a later interview, It was like he knew what he was doing. He told me I was never going to see my family again. He told me he would kill me like the others. So Cynthia had been taken to Ray's Toy Box, a soundproof trailer which Ray allegedly spent as much as $100,000 on, fitting out with all manner of horrifying instruments, including a gynecologist-style table, where victims would be strapped for days on end while torture was inflicted with the help of Cindy Hendy. Above this table was a mirror suspended from the ceiling so victims could watch the torture being inflicted upon them. These acts included whips, medical instruments, electric currents and shocks and masochistic sexual instruments. On the third day of her imprisonment, Ray left for work and Cynthia was in the box. Hendy had accidentally left the keys to Cynthia's restraints within reach and she manages to free herself. She attempts to call 911 from the box but is interrupted by Hendy. Hendy attempts to stop her from escaping, but grabbing a nearby ice pick, Cynthia stabs her in the neck. Oh. Good girl. Still wearing her iron collar, she flees the toy box completely naked, which is when motorists spot her. When police pick her up, going off her, you know, the outward appearance of torture marks, as well as the collar. Yeah, it's it's, not a good look. It's pretty clear that she's not just making some story up. Yeah. And Ray is pretty quickly arrested and police gain a search warrant to his home and trailer and stumble across his little box of horrors. 
Inside, police discover all manner of torture devices, including diagrams on the wall detailing ways in which women can be tortured. They also find videotapes of previous women being tortured and raped. After releasing some details of one of the women in these tapes, she is identified as Kelly Garrett, who had been a friend of Ray's daughter. In 1996, on July 24th, Kelly had been drugged by Ray's daughter while they were playing pool together at a local pub. Once she was drugged, Kelly was taken to Ray's trailer, where she was tortured and raped for two days, all the while being kept under the influence of common date rape, drug, date rape drugs that would also induce uh, partial amnesia in some. Mm. Ray then slit her throat and dumped her on the side of the road. Miraculously, somehow Kelly survives, but in a very sad twist, no one believes her story, including police. Her husband at the time, in fact, believes that she'd been cheating on him and they were divorced that same year. Oh, God, wow. Years later, though, it was Kelly's fractured memories that helped put David Ray behind bars for a total of 224 years. However, he died of a heart attack only three years into his sentence. His daughter, Jessie, received a sentence of nine years and Cindy Hendy received 36, but is now out of prison having served her full sentence. Or not her full sentence, but... uh, her parole, her parole yeah. sentence. Right. Kelly and Cynthia are the only two women who had ever been definitively identified as victims of Ray's. In his tra- trailer, police found diaries written by Ray detailing the murders of at least fifty other women, as well as the numbers. Sorry, as well as the number of female pieces of jewelry and clothing within Ray's home and torture box indicate an incredibly high volume of women too. Hendy did attempt to lead police to areas that she believed Ray had disposed of bodies, but no remains have ever been found. Police speculated that someone who was meticulous enough to build the box that Ray did would likely be skilled enough to dispose of these women in a way that would mean they were never found. Yeah, that makes sense. That and the theory that many of these women were sex workers from low socioeconomic backgrounds means it's likely that it means it's unlikely that they will ever be identified. Yeah. However, as of 2011, the case is still open and uh, I guess not being actively investigated, but the investigation is still open and being maintained by the FBI. Right. And that is David Ray, mm. the toy box killer. Not as uh, fun and lighthearted as it, as it sounds. Yeah. we. It? Um, I've seen so many memes around talking about how we need to stop giving such like light-hearted cool names to serial killers. Yeah, it is kind of a agree. It's very weird. It is kind of a weird name as well for a fucking sex torture and rape dungeon. Not a dungeon but a trailer. A, a toy box? Like that's that it doesn't I mean yeah, it's weird. Yeah, that was that was what he called it. He called it his toy box. So right. It feels like a weird yeah. justification of his Yeah, it does. It feels like you're name. giving it giving him control over his own fucking identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird. Which oh. is much like Son of Sam and BTK and all those kind of guys. It was like, here's my name. I want yeah. you to call me that. Just uh, just a quick side note, completely unrelated to the podcast. For our, for our male listeners, you may just want to like tune out for the next 15 seconds. But for the female listeners, does anyone else just get like incredibly bloated whenever it's that time of the month? Just uncomfortably so? All the time. It's just not fair. Like, it's bad enough it has to happen. Can we just chill out with, like, the 
everything else. I don't, I don't need everything on top of it. The emotions and crying and bloating and it's too much. Yeah, right. Just, you know, I like to share. Um, so my <laughs> no, like, continuing the show in which we talk about non, non-bloating things. <laughs> um, we talk about bloating dead bodies all the time. Thank you very That's much. a good point, actually, yeah. Uh, my my case that I'll be starting with is on a man called Bruce Jeffrey Pardo. Yeah. So is this the one you very briefly told me about? This is one of them. Uh, I don't think it's the one I told you about. Also, uh, I'm very sorry. I just kicked my mic stand just before. This is the one. I don't know how uh, legit this is, but what I've read is they've dubbed him the Santa Claus killer. Oh, okay. This is because... At approximately 11.30 p.m. Uh, on uh, the night of the murder of these attacks, it was I think it was uh, Christmas Eve, Bruce Jeffrey Pardo knocks down the door of his former in-law's house, occupied with about maybe 25 people of the Ortega family, um, his ex-wife. Uh, he was dressed up in a Santa Claus, Santa Claus suit. In one hand, he had a gift-wrapped package in which he had a homemade flamethrower. And in the other hand, he was holding a semi-automatic handgun. As well as that, he also had three additional uh, semi-automatic handguns stuffed into his pants. When the door opens, uh, young eight-year-old Katrina Yusuf Polsky runs to greet him. However, before she could get too close to him, Bruce shot her in the face. Now, she actually survives this and is one of the only survivors to actually get out of the shooting uh, miraculously. He then continues to fire indiscriminately into the Ortega family and they all try to flee and escape. Some of the family members are injured, others are killed, and a few are supposedly shot point-blank executioner style after being hit by stray bullets flying around all over the place. After the shootings, Pardo unwraps the package containing the homemade flamethrower filled with racing fuel gasoline and continues to set the entire house on fire. Jesus. About nine people died from either gunfire, gunfire or flames and three others were wounded. The before-mentioned eight-year-old girl Katrina suffered, with sev- uh, suffered severe but non-life-threatening injuries to her face after being obviously shot. One of the surviving family members fled to the attack and uh, escaped to the neighbor's house where she called the authorities. Can I just say it still, like, trips me out the amount of people that get shot in the face and, and survive. survive. It's crazy. And this is an eight-year-old girl who's still developing yeah. body. It's crazy. Uh, the fire ends up soaring about 40 to 50 feet tall and it takes 80 firefighters an hour and a half to extinguish it. Oof. The fire was so intense that some of the victims had to be identified by their mental and dental records. Jesus. Some of which, for a while, weren't even able. They weren't even able to identify them at all. At mm. some point, um, after the attack, Pardo takes off his costume, gets changed into his regular clothes, and drives a rental car to his brother's house in Silma, approximately thirty miles away from the, where the crime scene happened. Um, where he eventually was found dead from a self-inflicted gun wound. It's thought that Pardo was intending to flee to Canada by plane as he had 
previously bought a airline ticket to a flight on Air Canada. Though what they let the investigators later found was the flight was actually from Los Angeles to Malloyne, Illinois, with a layover to Minnesota. Pardo had called days before to tell his high school friend that he was planning to visit him, but investigators think it might have been a red herring to throw off uh, investigators. To, mm. um, because it's very a very confusing um, method of travel and, and yeah. you know, all that. Uh, so what it seems like uh, that happened, because he obviously had this pred- predestined plan yeah. at some point. What it seems like is after suffering some pretty gnarly third-degree burns on his arms, he switched up his plans. So he had $17,000 in cash wrapped in plastic wrap inside a griddle in, girdle in his, in his leg. His rental car, which was found about a block away from his brother's house where he was eventually found dead, uh, was rigged with a system using his Santa suit that would set fire on the car using black powder if the costume was removed. It was such a risk that bomb squad, the bomb squad had to fire an incendiary device into the car to destroy it because they didn't know what the fuck would happen if they pulled the Santa suit out. Um, That's some pretty hardcore stuff. That's what man. I mean. He obviously had a plan predestined to yeah. shooting himself that, you know, things kind of went wrong. Uh, back at his house, they had they found five empty boxes full of, uh, with... They were used for um, storing semi-automatic handguns, two shotguns, and a container of high-octane fuel. Mm. All about, there were three victims um, dead, caused by gunshot wounds alone. Four others died from a combination of both gunshot wounds and the resulting fire. And two other deaths stemmed from the fire itself alone. Uh, all of which were all part of the Ortega family, um, specifically Silvio Ortega Pardo, which was Pardo's ex-wife. Uh, it's thought that because of a divorce that happened recently, uh, recently after a stem of marital problems, um, including having to pay, um, having to pay his ex-wife, I think it was about a thousand dollars, thousand seven hundred eighty-five dollars a month in spousal support. Mm-hmm. Um, Though he was also had to pay ten thousand dollars as a divorce settlement, there was a few different things that stemmed from this divorce that seemed to trigger um, trigger Pardo into right. causing this yeah. it, this weird snap. Yes, um, so quite clearly coming from mar- marital issues, but the entire family you know, subject to this crazy yeah. attack. The the thing that that is so bizarre about it is it's obviously a snap trigger like you know um builds up of aggression and he wants to kill his ex-wife but not only that he has a plan to kill the entire family and does so dressed as fucking santa yeah that's dark with like a- i don't know there's something especially killing children dressed as santa it just yeah yeah so there was a, a 15-year-old and a 21-year-old who survived. However, there was also a 17-year-old um, young man who passed away oh, from the um, from the from the shootings. Yeah. Um, others were around 43 up to 80. So there was um, grandparents of young children. Mm. It was a very it's a very tragic story. Yeah. A very bizarre but tragic story. Um. Obviously, you know, 
I, this one caught my eye because of the whole Santa Claus killing thing. But yeah, uh, but yeah, a crazy story for a crazy situation, all happening in the s- suburbs of Los Angeles, California, in two thousand and eight. Very interesting story, and mm. that was my quick one. I kind of just wanted to, that was just the there wasn't too much um, interesting stuff surrounding it. It was kind of just you know, um, obviously a snap trigger thing but it was more so like this the santa claus thing and the present oh, like explosive santa claus suits pretty weird yeah very uh interesting case um and this is where we kind of get into the bigger yeah crazier cases this one um the next one i'm doing is i don't know i just find this so like all these stories are sad but yeah sometimes there are ones that just hit you differently this one in particular i just find so sad because it's just another story of corporate greed at the expense of human life uh so i'm going to be talking about the radium girls so the the radium girls are a group of girls and young women who are factory workers in the early uh 1900s so I wrote down 1990s and I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's not, not true. accurate. <laughs> Sometimes I write, when I write my notes, I write them so quick because I know that I know what I mean, but then every now and then I'm like in the early 1990s. Yeah. Like, no, Laura, you were born in the early <laughs> 1990s. Uh, the early 1900s, rather. With a world war beginning, many working class women not only joined the workforce to support their households, but to, you know, I guess, give their moral support as well to the men fighting overseas. They were often working in factories, creating and building things that would help the war effort. So the girls who were spread across three different radium factories in the US were called so due to the horrific radium poisoning that they would contract from painting watch dials with luminous paint. So the three factories were located in New Jersey, Illinois, and Connecticut, Dial painting paid more than three times the average factory job, and so it was a highly sought-after role. Due to their much smaller hands, it was a particularly popular job amongst younger teenagers, and they would, you know, sing the work's praises to their friends and siblings, who would then apply for the highly sought-after role as well. The girls who worked at the factories were listed as artists in the town directories, adding a certain sort of uh, special edge to the jobs as well. So during their time at the factories, all the workers were told that the paint was harmless and they were instructed to use a technique called lip dip paint. So this involved them physically wetting the brushes in their mouth to bring it to a fine point. So generally, because the watch dials were sometimes so tiny, only like three and a half centimetres across, you obviously had to have a very fine pointed brush to be able to get that tiny detail. And so... If you you know if you've ever painted before, it only holds that shape for a very short period of time before you need to yeah wet it again. Reapply it. Yeah. So they'd be constantly wetting the brush in their mouth, dipping it into the paint, and then painting the watch faces. And then, as I said, every couple of strokes, they'd need to to put it back in their mouth to kind of get that point again. So this meant nearly all of the women over their time in the factories ingested crazy high volumes of radium, which we now know is highly, highly, highly poisonous. Mm -hmm. One of the main players in this was the United States Radium Corps, and one of their main exports were radioluminescent watches, which military men used as the radium 
glows in the dark, meaning that you can see your watch face in the middle of the night without needing any sort of battery or power or being concerned that it's going to, you know, shit itself on you. Yeah. Now, I wanted to get into more detail, but it's worth noting that US Radium Corps hired many women for their watch painting as well as general handling of the radium. And while these women did these jobs with no safety gear, the men, the chemists and scientists who truly understood radium, avoided any exposure to the substance, including using lead screens, masks, tongs, and full-on protective gear whenever they had to handle this stuff. Wow, okay. The women were kept in the dark so much about the effects of radium that they would often paint their hair, nails, teeth, and faces with the paint due to the beautiful glow it gave them. At the time, minute amounts of radium were considered good for you, with it being sold as a health tonic in water, as Jeez. well as being added to cosmetics, butter, and toothpaste. That sounds like like that time of the time period. Yeah, they're like, yeah, you you crazy woman, you've got hysteria. Just do some cocaine and have sex. Yeah, have a cigarette. It's good for you. <laughs> so it was kind of heralded as this wonder drug that could add years to your life. <laughs> a company called. Uh, Rady Thor sold distilled water with tiny amounts of radium dissolved in it. They advertised it as a, quote, a cure for the living dead and perpetual sunshine, promising to help with various ailments from arthritis to gout. However, it was later discovered that the research that supported all these theories was funded by the radium industry itself. So to briefly explain how radium works in terms of how it affects your body... I found a quote from Timothy Jorgensen, who is a radiation expert at Georgetown Uni, and he explained it as, quote, chemically, it behaves very much like calcium. Since the body uses calcium to make bone, ingested radium is mistaken for calcium and gets incorporated into bone. So the major health risk of ingesting radium is radiation-induced bone necrosis and bone cancers. How soon they develop depends on the dose, but at the very high doses that the radium girls were exposed to just a few years. So the girls themselves became known as the ghost girls, as by the end of their shifts, they themselves would be glowing in the dark due to the particles that would float around in the air while the paint was being mixed. So basically, it would kind of settle like dust on their clothes and in their hair. Oh, interesting. So making the best of this, the girls would often wear their best clothes to work and then immediately go dancing afterwards, glowing through the dance halls. Most of these... Sorry, one of these ghost girls was Grace Fryer, who started her job at U.S. Radium Corps in New Jersey, April 10th, 1917, just four days after the U.S. officially joined World War I. Grace had two brothers who had joined the war effort and wanted to do her part as well. By 1922, dial painter Molly Magia was forced to quit her job because of her worsening health. After initially starting with a simple aching tooth that her dentist promptly pulled, more teeth followed, which were then followed by horrific ulcers which took the place of the pulled teeth, constantly oozing blood and pus and causing her immense pain and terrible breath. Molly's limbs then began to ache constantly, eventually leaving her unable to walk. Doctors prescribed her mystery illness as rheumatism and prescribed her painkillers, which, you know, that's a, that's a great... Offset Could you for imagine if, if she would, they were like... Radiation-induced yeah. cancer. If they were like, take some radium, it'll help. Yeah, have some Panadol <laughs> with a side of radium. We have this fantastic product. It's water with radium. I don't radium. know if you've heard about it. <laughs> Put it in your butter. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of truffle. Right up. 
Writers so by May of that year, most of Molly's teeth were gone and her entire jaw and mouth cavity was filled with agonizing ulcers. One of her dentists were eventually quoted as saying that her whole jaw was removed, quote, not by surgery, but by simply putting my fingers in her mouth and lifting it out. Oh, God. I saw a photo of, of that. So yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that was, that was a real thing. That's yeah. real. So, wow. yeah, it's very sad. Jesus. On September 12th, the illness had spread to her throat. The tissue wasting away so fast, doctors were unable to stem the bleeding, and Molly died aged 24 of her mystery illness, with doctors listing her cause of death as syphilis. <laughs> right. Okay. At the same time, Grace Fry was also beginning to struggle with mystery pains in her jaw and feet, as were many of her fellow workers, many of which quickly followed Molly into an agonizing death. U- uh, USRC, or United States Radiant Corps, denied any responsibility for Molly and the other workers' deaths. However, once gossip began to spread and their sales began to see a downturn, they caved and eventually funded an expert to look into the links between radium and the illness that had taken the lives of the girls. The first expert who was hired almost immediately found a link between the radium and the illness. Knowing this would essentially be suicide for their business, they covered up these findings and hired another expert, this time paying to ensure the findings would be the opposite of the initial expert, also lying to the Department of Labor about the findings in the initial report. Great. They also continued to remain in the pockets of the doctors and hospitals who treated the women, pressuring them to keep any of their real findings secret and label their deaths as other causes, particularly syphilis, which the radium companies would then use to try and smear the reputation of the women who eventually went on to sue them. Oh, gross. Okay. In 1925, Grace decided to sue the radium factories but spent over two years just trying to find a lawyer that would even look at the case. Eventually filing a lawsuit in 1927 with four of her fellow workers. However, it wasn't easy. While they amongst themselves knew the clear links between the radium ingestion and their illness, as I mentioned before, there was a widely held belief that radium was in fact good for you. And they were going head to head with these enormous radium corporations who not only had money but time on their side. Yes. At the time they finally had their case accepted by a lawyer, the girls were given just four months left to live. At their first court appearance in January 1928, two of the girls were so unwell they were bedridden and physically unable to lift their arms in order to go under oath. Which is just so sad. Once ingested, the radium was nearly always a death sentence, meaning the companies merely had to wait out the probable deaths of the women, suing them, and the lawsuit would disappear with them. What was soon discovered about how the radium works was it settles in the bones and then constantly puts out destructive radiation that essentially honeycombs the bones of the women and slowly but surely bore holes in their body from the inside out, killing them slowly. Wow, that's crazy. Grace Fry eventually had to wear a back brace as her spine was so honeycombed it was crushed by its own flimsy structure. Many of her co-workers had their jaws and legs eaten away to stumps and most suffered spontaneous bone fractures due to the fragile nature of their skeletons. So embedded in their bones was radium, the sufferers soon began to glow from the inside out. Their radium-riddled bones visible from the outside as the radium glowed through their skin. Holy shit. Yeah. And there was a quote I read online that a lot of these girls wouldn't realize how sick they were until they caught sight of themselves in the mirror at home and realized that they were glowing. Wow. And that was when they knew that 
they probably weren't going to be around for much longer if they didn't already know. That's insane. Yeah. The saddest part is that once it's there, there's no way to get rid of it. It just integrates itself into your bones. Well, if it's hollowing out your bones and... Well, it's because your body recognizes it as calcium. Yeah. So it just integrates it into the bone. It's not even like a tumor or something you can cut out. It just becomes part of the bone structure. Well, it's in a a microscopic state at that point. So, as I said, in 1927, the girls finally found a lawyer willing to be their representative, and that was Raymond Berry, who soon found himself and the girls in the middle of an international courtroom drama that captured the attention of the world. Due to the ticking time bombs inside each of the girls, the radium companies did their best to draw the proceedings out, and so the girls' cases were eventually settled out of court for a private settlement. But they had at the very least managed to raise the profile of the dangers of radium to a national level, as well as having the infamous lip dip paint practice banned and women in factories were given some protective gear. Even after this was settled, the radium companies still attempted to deny the dangers of radium when workers in the Illinois factory tried to seek compensation for their ever-growing medical bills, they were refused. One factory in Illinois took out a four-page ad in the paper reading, quote, if we had at any time reason to believe that any conditions of the work endangered the health of our employees, we would at once have suspended operations. Sure. Right. Okay. When workers from this factory began to die, the radium companies tampered with their corpses, stealing the honeycombed bones to try and hide the real cause of death. It was in 1938 another factory worker named Catherine Wolfe she decided to also take on the radium companies. Not only did Catherine have to contend with the same hurdles the first girls did, her case fell during the Great Depression, and she was shunned by her neighbourhood and friends for daring to try and bring down one of the last remaining factories at such a time. By the time her case finally went to court, Catherine was so sick she testified from her deathbed and finally justice was served. Catherine's second case led to the establishment of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration with which in its time is estimated to have saved roughly 10,000 workers' lives per year. Wow. The official number of girls who suffered illnesses or death or health problems related to the ingestion of radium is not officially known, but it's believed to be in the thousands. Oh, yeah. It would be a soaring amount. Whether or not this is people who died in the very obvious ways that you know, Molly and Grace and Catherine did, or if it was, you know, radiation cancer that popped up 10, 20, yeah. 30 years later. And something that some most doctors weren't really familiar with and weren't able yeah. to identify. But uh, it's a very sad sad story. But as I said, it led to the establishment of some pretty uh, quintessential workers' laws in America, which is very sad that, you know... Laws like that aren't kind of like common human decency. Yeah, but, of course. Uh, yeah. But it, it so goes things like that, like the Emmett Till, you know, cases, things like that, that start a revolution of something or um, bring forth the change of how the world sees things. Yeah. It's just very sad that it's so obvious, you know, because Marie Curie, who I believe her and her husband discovered radium she died of of radium poisoning yeah and she knew and her husband knew of the dangers of radium and they had written about it a lot so the companies would have definitely known that it was dangerous and it was just the fact that they just couldn't be asked to provide any sort of protective gear yeah for these women even afterwards when they provided some 
protective gear. It's like, what the fuck? You know, it's just such, like, a damp cloth could have achieved the same effect. Yeah, right? The paintbrush in your mouth could have achieved. It's just something so simple that would have just probably meant a slightly smaller amount of cloths, of clocks were painted and maybe a little bit of extra cost for protective gear. Yeah. But these companies are so wrapped up in corporate greed that they're not willing to sacrifice any sort of profit for, you know, the lowly lives of these women. I think just the sheer fact that alone that the scientists working with it are using all protective measures to avoid harm coming to them. Yeah. When... They're saying, no, no, there's nothing wrong with it. Put it in your mouth. It's fine. Oh, we we use those big tongs because, you know, we don't want to get it on our suits. Yeah. But it's fine. It's totally safe. Yeah, that's just crazy. Just shut up and put the paintbrush in your mouth. Well, very depressing. There is a movie. 2018. uh, Came out this year, I believe. Really? Uh, Yeah. With Joey King, who plays one of the main Radium Girls, uh, which I'm very excited to watch. I'm sure it was 2020. It was like September 2020. It was supposed to come out March, but because of COVID, it got pushed back. This is 2018. Oh, okay, weird. So, I think it released... uh, Weird. Okay, so it's saying 2018, but it's also saying... October 2020, so... Yeah, I think it's recent. Take from that what you will. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I watched the trailer and it actually looks really good. It's yeah. like a pretty accurate portrayal of uh, their legal fight against the radium company, so I'm very excited to watch that. It's got a lot of good actor- actresses in it as well. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Laura. Um, humble plug for the new movie coming out, which we will... That is out, that we will check out. Yeah. My second case is about a man named Ronald Gene Simmons, which very weird coincidental name having Gene Simmons in it. Yeah, not related to the real Gene Simmons. I hope not. Uh, Maybe named after the real Gene Simmons. Ah. (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? Um, So he's responsible for what is known as one of the worst mass murder cases in Arkansas. By the end of his spree, he had left 14 members of his immediate family and two former co-workers dead. One of his victims, and this is this is the little tidbit thing that I was telling you about before, mm-hmm. was a child he had fathered with one of his own daughters. Oh. Yes. Okay, don't like that. No. And if you look at an image of this guy, you will kind of like get that sense of it of, from him. You look at him and you go... Yeah, I can see it. He's giving off some serious incest vibes. Yes, okay. absolutely. Uh, Ronald Gene Simmons was born on July 15th, 19, 1940 in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta and William Simmons. Nearly three years later, William Simmons dies of a stroke, and within a year, his mother Simmons' mother is remarried, this time to a man named William D. Griffin, a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So his stepfather being involved with the corpse meant cause, sorry, the corpse meant that the family were transferred several times throughout the central area of Arkansas before the next decade. 
obviously moving around a lot. Mm, yeah. On September 15th, 1957, Simmons drops out of school and joins the U.S. Navy. His first station was with the Bree Merton Naval Base in Washington, which is where he would meet his future wife, uh, Bersavi Rebecca, nicknamed Be- Becky uh, Ulibari, who he met in New Mexico, who he married on, in New Mexico on July 9th, 1960. Over the next 18 years, they would go on to have seven children, and in 1963, Simmons left the Navy after about two years. He went on to join the Air Force. During his 22-year military career, he was awarded a Bronze Star, the Republic of Vietnam Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Marksmanship. He would go on to retire on November 30th, 1979 at the rank of Master Sergeant. He's making his way up in the ranks. Yeah. And just a quick side note, well, not a side note, but a quick thing to point out, military background. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, some time passes and on April 3rd, 1981, an investigation was made upon Simmons by the Cloudcroft New Mexico Department of Human Services on allegations that he had fathered a child with his then 17-year-old daughter, Sheila Simmons. That's so gross. Later on that year, Simmons flees to uh, to um, a different ward in Lenoke County and then later to Dover. Uh, Pope County in the summer of 1983 in hopes to avoid arrest. The family uh, were took up residence in, in a 13-acre plot of land that would soon become known as Mockingbird Hill. The home was constructed of two older model mobile homes joined together to form a larger singular home, and it was surrounded by a makeshift fence reaching to about about as high as 10 feet tall in some places. It also had no indoor plumbing or phone lines. So, love it. A very discreet, off the grid kind of thing. Simmons would go on to work a slew of low paying jobs in the nearby, nearby town of Russellville in Pope County. He quit a position as an accounts receivable clerk at Woodland uh, Motor Freight after several reports of inappropriate sexual advances. He went on to work at Sinclair Minimart for about a year and a half before quitting on December 18th, 1987. Things were starting to quite obviously unravel for Simmons. On December 22nd, 1987 is when everything changes. Okay. The whole story flips. Simmons bludgeons and shoots his wife with a 22 caliber pistol. He then went on to bludgeon and shoot his son, who was visiting their home at the time, a 29-year-old man called Ronald Gen- Gene Simmons Jr. He then strangles his three-year-old granddaughter. All three bodies were found later in a shallow pit Simmons had instructed the children of his ho- household to dig months before for a third family outhouse. Later on in the day, the Dover school bus dropped off the younger Simmons children from their, for their Christmas break from school. Supposedly, he separated the four children by telling them he had presents for them, but wanted to give it to them one at a time. 
the first to receive their quote unquote present was the eldest daughter of the of the four, seventeen year old Loretta, whom Simmons strangled and held under the water in a uh, rain barrel. The other three children, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky, were also killed in the exact same way. Their bodies, too, were also found in the hole for the outhouse. The oldest Simmons children, who had been invited to the home uh, on December 26, 1987, for an after-Christmas dinner. 23-year-old William H. Simmons II and his 21-year-old wife, Renetta May Simmons, and their twenty-month-year-old son, twenty-month-old son, sorry, uh, all of for Fortis, uh, Dallas County, were thought to be the first to arrive. William and Renetta were both shot, and their bodies were left by the dining room table, covered with their own coats and some bedding. Their infant child was killed and placed in the trunk of a car behind the Simmons' homes. Next to arrive was Simmons' twenty-four-year-old daughter Sheila and her husband, 93-year-old Dennis Raymond, uh, along with their children, which was the seven-year-old daughter that Sheila mothered from her own father. Yeah, gross. And uh, a 21-year-old, 21-month-old Michael, which was fathered by her then-husband, Dennis. Sheila was shot, and her body was laid on the dining room table covered with a tablecloth. Simmons shot Dennis and strangled Sylvia. He also strangled Michael and placed him into the trunk of another parked car. Later the same day, Simmons drove off to Russellville where he stopped at a Sears store and picked up a Christmas gift that he had been ordered. Uh, He had ordered but had not made it in before the holidays. Later that night, he drove to a private club in Russellville and then went home and waited out the week the weekend. So he spends the entire weekend with these bodies in his house. Yeah, that's super. Some creepy. in the ditch in the back, some on the dining table, some wrapped, some just out. Yeah. Bizarre. On Monday, uh, December 28th, 1987, Simmons drives a car that belonged to his son, Ronald Jr., to Russellville. He purchases a second gun from Walmart and drives off to the Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons law firm. After entering the building, Simmons shot and killed receptionist uh, slash secretary Kathy Cribbins Kendrick. This was the company he was uh, at some point fired from. Right. Uh, or, yes, fired from. He's really uh, going for a, a spree here. Yes, he really is. His next stop was the Taylor Oil Company, where he shot and wounded Russell Rusty Taylor, the owner of the uh, Sinclair Mini Mart, where he had worked, and then shot and killed J.D. uh, Jim Chaffin, a fireman and part-time truck driver for Taylor Oil. Simmons shot and missed a few other employees before uh, exiting the building. He then went on to Sinclair Mini Mart, where he shot and wounded Roberta Woolery and David Slayer. Finally, he stopped at the Woodland uh, Motor Freight Company. Simmons searched for his former supervisor, Joyce Butts, and wounded her in the head and chest. He then turned to Vicky Jackson, uh, took her by gunpoint into the computer office, and advised her to phone the police. Apparently, he told... Uh, Vicky Jackson, quote, 
I've come to do what I've wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me. End quote. He surrendered to the Russellville police when they arrived. Simmons was sent to the Arkansas State Hospital in Little Rock, uh, Pulaski County, for a competency evaluation by staff psychiatrist Dr. Irving Cowell. The staff psychiatrist found Simmons to be completely sane and capable of standing trial. Public defenders Robert G. Doc Irwin and John Harris were appointed to represent Simmons, and the prosecuting attorney was John Bynum. The jury selection for the first trial took less than six hours. Simmons was convicted on May 12, 1988, in the Franklin County Circuit Court for the deaths of Kendrick and Chafin. On May 16th, Judge John Samuel Patterson sentenced Simmons to death by lethal injection plus 147 years. Simmons refused all rights to appeal. He was found guilty of 14 counts of capital murder in the death of his own family members on February 10th, 1989 in the Johnson County Circuit Court with Judge Patterson presiding. Uh, the prosecuting attorney Bynum offered a possible motive when he said uh, that an undated note that was discovered in a safe deposit box at Russellville Bank after the arrest, it was a note indicating a love-hate relationship between Simmons and his daughter Sheila, which he uh, fathered a daughter with. Mm. Uh, after the judge ruled the letter admissible, apparently Simmons lashed out at Bynum, punching him in the face and struggling unsuccessfully to grab the deputy's handgun. Okay. Officers rush him out of the courtroom in chains and he's sentenced to death by lethal injection on March 16th, 1989. Again, waiving all rights to appeal. Yeah. Are you ready for a what the fuck moment? I mean... There's a few of them. I feel we're like getting we've to already the, had a few, but yeah, sure. We're getting me. to a what the fuck moment okay. right here. Was him having sex and fathering a child with his daughter not the what the fuck moment? Yes, but here's another what the fuck moment. Okay. Okay. On March the 1st, 1989, Simmons is found competent to waive his uh, rights to appeal his conviction. Um, however, uh, this is all leading up to the what the fuck moment, okay. by the way. Uh, the filing of Whitmore versus Arkansas challenged uh, the whole um, lethal injection thing. It's a famous case. Look it up. Uh, Revlin, Lewis, Franz, and Jonas Whitmore contended that Simmons, using his right to refuse appeal, in fact, jeopardized the um, rights of other death row, death row inmates. By seven to, do, to vote, the Supreme Court justices throughout the appeal However, the ongoing legal proceedings had prevented the execution of Simmons from being car- carried out. Um, he was supposedly watching TV and eating his last meal when he got news that his execution wasn't actually going to go through at all. Are you ready? May 31st, 1990. A governor by the name of Bill Clinton, yes, the very same Bill Clinton that went on to become fucking president of the United States, mm-hmm. signed Simmons' second execution warrant for the June 25th, 1990. President Bill Clinton. There you go. Signed the death warrant for for this man. That's pretty cool. What the fuck? Crazy. 
This was the quickest sentence to execution um, to death time in the United States history since the death penalty was reinstated in, in 1976. Uh, supposedly, Simmons refused all visitors. Uh, this included uh, legal county, counsel. Sorry. Uh, and his last words were, quote, justice delayed finally be done is justifiable homicide, end quote. Zero family members claimed his body and therefore Simmons was buried in a pauper's plot in Lincoln Memorial Lawn in Verna, Lincoln County. Wow. That's a proper, like, spree killer. Yes. that. So, not only is it members of his family for... Seemingly no real proper reason. He goes on to kill people from workplaces where he's been fired and has left and has had sexual advances advances turned down. I think it's so interesting that everyone talks about Richard Speck as a spree killer when that is, to me, so the vastly thing with, more interesting. The thing with Speck is he didn't plan to kill any of the women. He was there for rape. Right. So, what he ended up... The reason he ended up murdering was a premeditated murder. It was a heat-of-the-moment thing. Okay. Because people were running, things got out of control, he couldn't have control of the situation, so he took medicine to his own hand and killed everyone to assert control over the situation again. This is a premeditated murder. Right. Because either the trenches have been dug for the third outhouse was most likely to prepare for the bodies. Because it's seemingly he was ready to kill at least a few people. Yeah. Um, maybe the, the older children showing up um, wasn't planned. Maybe it was due to the... The letter that was found um, between him and his his daughter, but seemingly the ones that were pre-planned and always going to happen were the ones relating to his workplaces. Yeah, so being fired and having his sexual advances being turned down, unfortunately, resulting in that secretary being killed, um, and plenty of other people being killed in workplaces. That seems like to me. A premeditated mm, Yeah, thought. for sure. Yeah, um, that's true. And I think maybe the families were premeditated. From what I can understand, it makes sense. Although, you know, it's hard to make sense of the mindsets of people sometimes in these situations. Yeah. You know. Um, very interesting case. And all happened around Christmas. Yeah, you had two uh, Christmas-themed ones. Merry Christmas on Beautiful People. Mine were not really Christmas-themed. No. You know, I didn't get the memo. No. (laughs) This is our um, our somewhat Christmas-themed episode. Mm. I mean, that wasn't like an official thing we were doing. No, it was just a thing that kind of happened. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but... Yeah. Your mic stand just fall down. Yeah, so my mic stand this entire time has been slowly drooping down. So I've had to like slut drop <laughs> on the couch to like <laughs> I love your dedication. Yeah, it's just um it's not staying anymore. I think this might be time to get a new mic stand. The universe telling us something. Yeah. Okay, I think I got it. Um yeah. So there we go. 
that was our um, that was our episode. For very of, interesting episode of Christmas stories. For those of you who just tune in for the factual portion of the evening, off you go. Uh, thanks for joining us, and Get we'll catch you next season. Get out of you, you silly peeps. Scamper off, you little scallywags. You silly little buggers. And for those of you who like to stick around to listen to us, shoot the shit at the end. Yeah, why? Welcome. Why? Welcome. Explain because to we're me. funny. <sighs> okay. <laughs> sure. Well, but, I am anyway. Oh, wow. Shots fired. I'm hilarious. Shit. Everybody says so. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess we can talk more about the Zodiac thing. Um, I guess there's something really to, to elaborate on. But <laughs> covered it all. Did we? Yeah. I mean, There's sure. not really much else to cover. No. Like, they solved a cipher. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually lead to any real breaks in the case. The main cryptogram is the one where he says what his name is, but because it's so short, they don't think they're ever going to be able to solve it because there's not enough, like, uh, information around yeah. the cryptogram to be able to create a real sort of... I can't think of the word. But profile. Like, or, profile yeah. of what he's trying to say. The yeah. thing to remember is it's not also... It's not also um, based around those deciphering those um cryptic letters or those puzzles it's they also don't have enough evidence to really narrow down a list of people yeah well i mean the cryptogram could be like my name is john and they'd be like oh cool but there's just it's also it's not all based on it's not all writing on those letters essentially there's a lot of factors that haven't really pinpointed the person together and it's Unlikely it's ever going to be solved. I don't think we're ever solving this. No, unfortunately not. I would love it if they did, but I just... Yeah. I mean, like, given the popularity of the... Not the popularity, rather, but, like, the infamacy of the Golden State Killer case and all the surrounding buzz around that resulting in um, breakthroughs in cases and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera... I mean, it's possible that things might continue to arise, but in terms of finding someone who's living and breathing and was the um, culprit, it's highly unlikely. Yeah. Um, although it's really cool to see people, um, you know, a- attempting these things and, and finding out. And being successful at Yeah, it. successfully finding out these mysteries that have been unsolved for, for many, many years. I think it's really interesting that this was uh, this happened. Yeah, same. And all kudos to those people because they're doing a great job. Another mystery that was solved for me last week was the mystery of whether or not Taylor Swift listens to true crime podcasts. Yeah. She does. She do. She confirmed on her YouTube uh, premiere for a new music video that one of the songs from the new surprise album she dropped, which is in like basically like a true crime podcast episode in music form. Uh, she confirmed that she is obsessed with true crime podcasts and documentaries, which to that I say, same. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she wrote a song called Nobody No Crime on her new album. It's excellent. It's essentially about a wife that discovers her husband's cheating on her and then the husband murders the wife and then the wife's best friend murders the husband. And it's a bop. 
Yeah. Um, please proceed to tag Taylor Swift in every post we ever make from now on in hopes that she might get obsessed with our podcast. Look, and Taylor, if you are listening, look, just shoot us an anonymous email. Yeah. I won't tell anyone. Stop hitting I, us up in our DMs. I would God. Die. I would actually just deceased die. Yeah, like, so maybe don't hit her up then because... No, but please do. You don't want to be responsible do. for manslaughter. I will take responsibility for my own death. Otherwise, she will die and then people will talk about it on their podcast about how Taylor Swift killed someone by simply talking to her. It's <laughs> true, pal. Yeah. You'll find her on Murderpedia. One victim. With a question but uh, mark. yeah, uh, Tama can can confirm that I am a massive Taylor Swift fan. She's a big Swifty. So if she ever listened to our podcast, I and if I found out that she did, I would actually just drop dead. Yeah. But uh, yeah, great yeah. album. For all you people who aren't Taylor Swift, though, we still appreciate you, and uh, we very much enjoy the fact that you are listening to the show. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's been um it's been a great year. We've really honestly exceeded uh expectations not not uh, well not in terms of us, but in this show has exceeded our expectations. Oh yeah, I thought like two people were gonna listen to this. Yeah. When we first did it it was kinda like um you know, we listened to podcasts and Mindhunter was one of our favorite shows, still is, you know, we were obsessed with Law and Order and CSI and all those shows as kids and, you know, novels and detective movies. It's always been um, a thing that Laura and I have been obsessed with individually and coming together as a couple, it's something we discover that we have in common and we love. And this podcast was started as a passion project um, due to shitty circumstances, you know, we, we were stuck inside. Um, we had a thing we wanted to do for a while and we did it and yeah, it's really just shot off. Like we, we've done, um, shows previously, we've done projects previously and, um, a lot of it revolves around the, the, the hunger to want to do it and the passion to want to do it. And, I think us doing it together has really achieved what we've wanted to out of it. We're, we're two people who live together and uh, spend most of our time together, and it's really impossible to not enjoy this show together and not have the same passion for it. Um, so I feel like this has really broke through many of our our other you know projects and. It's really amazing that we have this show and we can talk about stuff we are passionate about and we are fascinated by and you guys listen in and, and join in on that sensation. And it's really cool and we appreciate the hell out of you guys. See, that right there is the main thing we're going to struggle with for our wedding vows. Yes. Is you are so like well-spoken and articulate and heartfelt and I'm like... Yeah, this like this gig's pretty tops, eh? <laughs> Fucking shit. True crime, am I right? I feel like it needs to be there. You need that. Um, you need that raw energy to it. I'm just like, 
I'm a very emotional person and a very not emotional person at the same time. Your brain moves faster than your lips can manage. 100%. Um, and that, and it, it's not that you aren't articulate. It's that you're too articulate for your mouth to really prepare for. Yeah, exactly. So you're like, you have this amazingly constructed sentence in your head and it'll come out like, what? It's like every fifth word makes yeah. it out my mouth. No, it's more so like I'm just not good at at expressing emotions in word format unless I'm like writing it. I get very like awkward saying things out loud. Yeah. Like, like heartfelt things. I don't like saying heartfelt things. I don't know. But I am a very emotional person. Like, I cry at the drop of a fucking hat. You do. You're a very emotional person. I cried last night. You did. <laughs> you did indeed. I cried last night just because I was, you know, having an off afternoon. Yeah. But in terms of me, like, expressing in words, being like, I really appreciate <laughs> you people. I'm like, I get super awkward and I don't know what to say. Yeah. So that's going to be the issue. You have no issue expressing... Yeah your feelings in words. So you're going to have these like beautiful, thoughtful, heartfelt vows. And I'm going to be like, here's all the things I don't like about Tama. <laughs> and I'm marrying him in spite in of all despite these Despite of it. Yeah. It's going to be a very weird, like whiplash change of pace. Yeah. I think it, it comes a little bit easier to me um, because I am a writer of different art forms uh, and so writing my emotions or things that I think comes very naturally to me, which is why I've always wanted to get into podcasting. It's, I love to shoot the shit and um, discuss things that I'm interested in. So much so that sometimes when we're out and we meet people and they show a, a, a slight vested interest in true crime, we become like, fucking vultures on a carcass yeah, like it's, hello yeah i we've i know i don't know about us or you but i know i've personally scared a few At people least five people but also yeah. how funny was it so we caught up with my dad on friday night who i many people say i'm like my mum. i think most people who know me very well would say i'm mostly like my dad behavior wise so we were talking to my dad about the podcast and how it's kind of like we've had a really good year with it and we've been scaring people at parties without like <laughs> encyclopedic knowledge yes. of serial killers. And I was talking about how one of my new favorite conversations is to ask people at parties how they would dispose of a dead body and how I got into an argument with this guy once who said that he would just try and pass off the body as a piece of asbestos. And straight away when I told my dad that, my dad was like, well, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I know. <laughs> Wait, so you would pass it off as a piece of asbestos? So, so, how, so the way they have to dispose of asbestos, you can't just put asbestos in a bin. Asbestos has to be wrapped in special plastic that will never, ever break down. Okay. And then it gets buried and then it gets concrete poured on top of it. So that's to stop it. Like leaking, leaching into like the water table system, stop it leaching into any plants through their roots. So it's disposed of in a very particular, very safe, very 
protective way. Yes. So this dude was like, well, you just, they'd wrap it in plastic and then they'd bury it and they'd pour concrete on it. And I'm like, yeah, but they don't just like, you don't just walk up and you like, here's some asbestos and yeah. they're like, okay, <laughs> like they're going to check it, you dick. Then- and he was so convinced it was just like the perfect plan. He was like, all right, well, I'll put it in with some asbestos. I'm like, well, first of all, where, where are you getting asbestos you getting the asbestos from, from bro? Second of all, I'm pretty sure they're still going to check this bag of asbestos that you just lugged up and be like, where did you get this asbestos from? And then you're going to be like, oh, I don't know. It's just such a poorly thought out. Should we should we end I, this this year's episode with talking about how we would dispose of a body? I don't think we've actually talked about that. I mean, so I just wanted to keep on that conversation that we yeah. were just having. Um, that yeah, that, that idea is just baffling to me. But also, I feel like it's kind of a good thing because maybe they haven't thought necessarily on how much they would dispose of a dead body. Oh, and by the by, that was the same guy who at the same party ended up talking about how he didn't think Kyle Rittenhouse did anything wrong and he thought he was just a naughty boy. Oh, okay. Well, I yeah. was like, aha. <laughs> right. You're that kind of person. Yes. Okay. I understand and who you are. And then he started talking about how Black Lives Matter was a cult and that was the point where we were like, okay, it's time for us to leave. He also wore a cowboy hat. And- Not ironically. Um, I get I that there's anything wrong with wearing a cowboy hat, but I get that like, that's a thing in the states, particularly in Texas. I understand it. I am fully with it. Like if you uh, actually work on a farm, this dude like lived in the inner city. Yeah, if you're in the city or you're in not a farmland in Australia, I'm just gonna uh, assume. Nighttime. I'm just gonna assume you stab birds in parks. Yeah, if anyone wanted to argue that he was wearing it for sun protection, it was it was night time. Yeah, you can not use that for sun protection. Anyway, he night. was a weird dude. Yeah. Uh, I think I have a fairly good idea of how I would murder someone and cover, cover it up and dispose yeah. of the body. I've thought I, about this probably too much. To be completely honest, I have not thought on it that much. I have understand how people have um, disposed of bodies before and how they successfully have done so. And, you know, there's obviously um, movies and TV shows that cover it, uh, but I don't have the mental capacity to do that puzzle. Right. Um, So, you can go ahead. I'll... Think of something. So, obviously, my plan is, uh, like, the plan would obviously change depending on who it was. Like, if you've killed someone in, like, a spree, like, crime of passion, yeah. out of the blue kind of thing, then obviously it's it's very different. But if I was, like, if I planned to murder someone, and by the way, I'm assuming that you are... An accessory. ...in on this with me. Yeah. Um. So, if I'm not sure. able to lure them over to our house, uh, I would leave wherever I was, making sure that my I'd wear like a hoodie or something so CCTV can't capture it's me leaving the premises. I would make sure that any of my plans to them saying oh, I'm coming over are obviously done verbally in person or verbally over the phone so there's no paper trail of you saying you're going to the house. Go to the house, uh, take bleach with you, 
murder them however you want. I guess in Australia it would have to be a knife or strangling or something because yeah. we don't really have guns here. Or if they have a peanut allergy, just rubbing peanuts on their face. Yeah, that would work. Or depriving uh, them of Vegemite. So I haven't really thought through the cleaning process that much. Yeah. Uh, but my cover-up would avoid – would sorry, involve you then staying at home and ordering enough takeout to look like there's two people still at home. So even though obviously it's not a flawless cover-up, you'd be like, yeah, she was home. We were watching TV. We got Uber Eats. Here's the Uber Eat receipt. I ordered two burgers and two lots of fries and two drinks, clearly indicating that someone was home. Like it could be, obviously it could be a lie, but – it's some sort of alibi, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're making a face. I'm making a face because this is very thought out. Why do you sound so surprised? I'm so organized in everything in my life, of no, course. Just, just go on. Again, so then I haven't really... The part I haven't really thought of is how you break the body apart. Because obviously dismembering a human body is not that easy. Again, you need to make sure that if you buy any tools, you're doing it in cash... Yeah. Making sure your face is hidden from CCTV, all that sort of stuff. My thought with actually physically disposing of the body. So as long as you're dealing with a regular run-of-the-mill human who wouldn't have had a run-in with the police and most likely doesn't have their DNA in any sort of database, your issue isn't necessarily just hiding and having the body never be found. The issue is having the body never be identified. There's a big difference between finding a white female arm and finding a white female arm that you can link to that person. Yeah. So I guess removing the fingertips, removing, and then probably burning the fingertips because it's just skin, so that would burn. Removing any super identifiable tattoos, just the skin layer, and again, burning them because that will burn. And then... uh destroying the jaw for dental records and then basically getting, I feel like everyone listening to this is just so concerned right now. I'm fucking sitting here like John F. Kennedy's wife just after being assassinated. Like what the fuck is going to happen to me? Anyway. And then you, you, <laughs> you chop up the body into as smaller pieces as, as reasonably possible and then just try and distribute them as far away from each other and from the crime as possible. And that's my plan. Fuck, okay. Um, what? We, as if I haven't talked about enough killers for it to be reasonable for me to have thought that plan out. Everyone's going to think I'm psychotic now. Guys, I don't have much else to do while I'm at work. <laughs> um, Sometimes in my lunch break... I have an hour lunch break. I never know what to do with myself. So I you sit just sit there wondering, murders. how would I get rid of dental records? Look, if ah, it makes crushing you, the jewels. If it makes you feel better. Will it? Uh, <laughs> there could be people listening who's like, that's so wrong and you actually don't know what you're talk, talking about. A lot of this is based off television shows and movies. Let's be real. Yeah. For all you know, you could be full of shit. And someone out there who's actually studies forensic... Sci- um, yeah, science it's just is like going, wrong, yeah. wrong, wrong. Uh, you're a fucking moron. Although, to be perfectly fair, from what we understand from cases where people have been caught, there are things that have linked them to victims' bodies that if you were to 
eliminate that, they probably would have never been caught. Yeah, it's all about not having a paper trail. Because even even but even having like victims like the the, the Zodiac killer or the Black Dahlia yeah. killer had a clear um, victim who was identified. Yeah, I guess even, it's even, also you're also talking about whether you are is what we just talked about talking about you know having to kill someone that you know or having to kill a complete stranger because if it's a complete yeah. stranger you then also have to be tasked with removing every shred of evidence that you were ever there so any piece of dna any hair yeah. any fingerprints if it's someone that you know well, yeah, my fingerprints were on the door because we've been friends for seven years and I go to the house all the time. Like, yeah. yeah, maybe there was a strand of my hair in the house because I was there two weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you have to take all that into account. But I do think the Uber Eats thing is smart. Yeah. Because it's not an airtight alibi, but it's just adding that extra layer of evidence on top of you just being like, yeah, she was home with me. Yeah. I mean, so this is all also based off of things we understand from cases that were from the seventies up to now, like so 50 years of criminal investigations that we've sort of studied. We aren't too up to scratch with how technology has advanced in terms of forensic science and the way investigators work to this day. So you could have this all thought out, but there could be an ace and ace up the sleeves of, you know, and there probably is what these investigators can bring to the tables. They probably have something that they don't like. We don't fucking I would love we, to think I'm smarter we, than we're not, investigators, we don't, but I'm probably not. We aren't investigators and we aren't forensic forensic scientists. We don't, we haven't studied um, such things. We know about their relation to certain cases and we know about them in certain aspects of how we find them fascinating, but we haven't studied these things and they have. So, you know, this entire thing is just based off of information that we have pieced together. It's also an entirely moot point because, A, I don't do very well with blood, so I could never murder someone just because I'd vomit all over them. You just think thing... Sorry, go on. And B... You will have known from being with me for five years, I can't even, you know, leave an injured bird on the side of the road, let alone another human being. Yeah, you're, like, you're too much of a sweetheart to kill anyone. Laura, rescuer of pigeons. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing was, ever since Breaking Bad came out, everyone was was like set on the idea of disposing a corpse in terms of using acid. To break down Mythbusters. Um, a body. Mythbusters shot that the way the fuck down. Even with other um, chemical compounds, it was still, you know, not a very viable way. Yeah, like 80% of, of the body left. Yeah, even if the, there was a way to, to dispose of most of the body, it's highly dangerous, causes a lot and a lot of agitation in the reaction. Uh, like if you watch the episode of Mythbusters, fucking steam and smoke and everything, all kinds of shit everywhere. Uh, it's not a very subtle way of disposing a body. We'll just say that. Mm, very true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I really thought about that much, but I, I suppose the the biggest way, the way we've seen corpse disposal being handled is. Uh, that, that have had um, 
a hard time investigators figuring out who they are is most of the time burnt corpses. Um, fingernails, fingerprints, you know, facial recognition, uh, DNA is kind of hard to uh, to take from them, especially um, bodies that have been exposed to extremely high temperatures. So mm. incinerator style shit. Um, you, you're left with, you know, uh, some bone fragments left with dental, uh, like teeth, um, all of which can be destroyed in s- different ways. But, I mean, that's kind of the idea is eliminating any trace of ever there being a human being in the first place. Yeah. That's the whole idea. I also just realized that there's a massive hole in my theory. I've realized there's a huge hole in my in my um, plan anyway. Yes. Is that once a person goes missing, their DNA doesn't need to be in the system. They just go to their house and take shit from their house and get their DNA. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I was like, the DNA has to already be in. No, they yeah. just go to, when someone goes missing, they go and they're like, here's Thomas' toothbrush. Yeah, because then you, if that was the your theory, then it's like, well, just don't kill someone who isn't a criminal. Yeah. So, see, I told you. It's, yeah. I, it sounds good in my head, but in theory, in, yeah, in we, practice. We're probably. true crime fans. We are not expert murderers. We're not murderers. We don't have, we haven't, and as you can plainly understand, we haven't really meditated on the thought that Funny much. Any police officers listening to this, we're not murderers. Yeah. Also, come on our show. Yeah. Fucking we mad. We have too many cats to be murderers. I can't go to prison. I'm a mother. Yeah. We're too fucking busy anyway, dude. A true crime to, podcast. We can barely do a podcast about true crime, yeah. let alone commit true crime. I have no when time I for find it. the time. Exactly. I don't have any other time for any other hobbies. So what, am I going to replace my park workout on Wednesday with like some good old-fashioned like a stabbing spree? No. I want to yeah, do my squats. Like that. We're good, bro. We've got other outlets. To... Squats, not stabs. Yes. That should be a t-shirt. Squats, not stabs. Squats over stabs. Maybe new merch coming for you next year. Next year, brothers and sisters. 2021. What a year that'll be for the show. God, I hope it's a better year than this year. It will be. It'll be a great year. Joe Biden's going to be president. Uh, Hopefully, you know, for the countries really going through it with COVID, the vaccine will really help, you know, flatten things out for you. We've... We're kind of doing pretty well down here in Australia. Yeah. Without, but uh, I know for countries like the UK and the US that are really struggling, hopefully the vaccine will, you know, help help move things along in terms of the recovery process. Maybe Tom and I can go somewhere, anywhere, travel. That New Zealand's nice. uh, opening up an air bubble next year. Yes, that, that would be exciting. Um, I believe uh, um, self isolation after like, like two weeks. After travel is still going to be a thing. Yeah, we could go to Tasmania. Yeah, we could. <laughs> actually really good food and wine there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. Let's do it. Um. Whoa, shit, guys. This is it for the year. Yeah. This is, this is the... Thank you so much thing. for all the support this year. It's like, it's it's been really quite phenomenal to think that people actually enjoyed this little show that we made and... Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's a good time to edit now. We're getting into Christmas and it's just incredibly busy. And I think we just need a new year to restart um, a schedule because, like I said, this whole situation was just kind of dropped on us. Like, we 
obviously made the show and we wanted the show to go go somewhere, but um, it, it happened so fast. It, it was out of nowhere that we've really just been like trying to run with the plane taking off. It's Yeah, and we were both, when we started it, we were both from working from home yeah. full time. Laura at some point was unemployed. And then Tama went back to the office full time. Yeah. And then I went back to the office full time and then I was unemployed and then I was... Yeah. employed again and now I'm back in the office part-time. And- yeah. And at some point we all, we took up exercise and um, extracurricular activities and things like that. And we also have uh, social lives and things like that. Yeah. But- and I think we, we worked out a schedule right towards the end that would, that will genuinely work really well yeah. next year, but we just tried to enforce it at like the worst time. Yeah, because just, just during everyone, Christmas, there's it's... so many social events, and it's just impossible to have yeah. any sort of schedule. So I think next year we'll be back, sort of mid uh, mid Jan. We both go back to work on the fourth, so I think we'll probably give ourselves a week or two to kind of yeah. get our heads screwed back on after having some time off and going back to work, and then we'll be back mid Jan. Yes, and hopefully we'll be bringing you some new stuff. Uh, maybe looking to incorporate some kind of new elements into the show, some new stuff. If you have any suggestions for stuff that you'd like us to do, that's not just like, you know, our typical two stories a week thing. Uh-huh. If you have any ideas, let us know. And yeah, if you don't celebrate Christmas, have a lovely couple of weeks without us. Um, if you do celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or... Uh, those are the only Kwanzaa. religious Kwanzaa. Those are the only religious holidays I know. I hope you have an excellent holiday season. And hey, I, this is the first time I get to make this joke. I love this joke. We'll <laughs> see you next year. <laughs> uh, God, I love making that joke. Uh, we are the BSC podcast on all things social. Make sure you check out our social media so you can get updates on when we might be coming back. Um, like I said, it will be around uh, mid-January at some point. Uh, you will be notified if you check us a like on or follow us on phone, any of our social media accounts. Yeah. Or uh, email us at um, the best served cold Best served cold podcast at gmail.com. Email us or reach out to us on social media. We'll give you um, deets on where we're at. And anything else you need help with in terms of you want to support the show, buying merch, uh, whatever you want to do. Want us to send us photos of your dogs and cats. We're all there for that. Uh, Always there for that. Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. And for the last time of 2020... Oh, wait, what were you going to say? I don't know. You just really threw me off with that. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I thought you were done. No, I was on a roll and you just fucking jammed me with a dagger right in the eye. Well, sorry. Like you were Jamie Lannister in the first season of Game of Thrones. It's gone? You don't remember what you were going to say? No, it was just going to be... A lovely message to everyone saying Happy Christmas. And Well, you already said that. All right. Well, fuck everyone then. Fuck you guys. Don't say that. Sorry. Anyway. Please don't bad review me because I just said that. (laughs) For the last time of 2020, we will give you our signature sign-off and we will see you next year. Uh, bye. Bye.